We have heard your cries. We know all of you have been clamoring for this. Ever since we teased you with the action-packed, no-holds-barred, cinematic money shot that is Beau Travai, you've been begging us constantly. When are you going to do another art film? Well, the wait is over, friends. You know that special feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you see a film so beautiful yet wildly unmarketable that you know in the depths of your immortal soul that no one on earth ever paid money to see it? If you've been watching the movies along with us, you just got to feel that feeling for four and a half hours. That's a lot of hours. That is so many hours that IMDb refuses to acknowledge this as one movie. It splits it into part one and part two. But we here at Danger Close know what the people want. And no, I don't mean agricultural reforms. You want four and a half unadulterated hours of Benicio Del Toro pretending to have asthma. Assuming you went to college and weren't quite smart enough to learn a trade right out of high school, imagine yourself back in a freshman dorm. Not necessarily your dorm. Any dorm. The dorm of the guy down the hall you never quite wanted to talk to. Remember that guy? The posters on his wall are going to include at least one, if not all four, of the following. Bob Marley smoking a Caddyshack-sized spliff. Marilyn Monroe lifting weights in a bra. Muhammad Ali standing over a vanquished Sonny Liston in the first minute of the first round on May 25, 1965. Or a shaggy-haired man with a patchy beard and a beret with a red star on it. That last one was always a bit of a puzzlement to me in my college days. Back then, I wasn't quite the flaming leftist atheist that you've come to know and love. I was still learning about the proletariat and the Lumen proletariat and dialectics, and the differences between socialism, Marxism, and Stalinist communism. But it seemed to me this serious-looking man was somebody about whom I should know. But the posters didn't tell you much more than that. They all just had the letters C-H-E under his picture, whatever the hell that means. Still, I could tell even then that he was a divisive figure. Just hanging his face on the wall seemed to be enough of a statement of identity without any further explanation. But the same could be said of a whole slew of people, from Jesus to Martin Luther King to Malcolm X to Adolf Hitler. While I knew I would have to do more reading and research on my own to learn about this historical figure, I was honestly too poor a student to do so at the time. There were plays to write, and gin to drink, and women to woo, and classes to sleep through, and I was much more of a naked women with Pink Floyd covers painted on their backs kind of guy anyway. It seems strange, standing as we are on the precipice of 2022, that a non-Latine director could have helmed today's film a little over a decade ago. I'm still grappling with Spielberg directing a remake of West Side Story. But if you were going to have a white guy tell this story, it might as well be someone as all over the map as Steven Soderbergh. By this point, he'd already had as many underappreciated indie darlings and Oscar winners under his belt as he had commercial and critical flops and box office smashes. And with Oscar winner Benicio Del Toro as a driving force behind the production, this biopic had to seem unfuckable to them. And if it had been made 30 years earlier, they just might have been right. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So light up a fine Cuban cigar, because oh my god does this movie make me want a cigar, and get comfy, because again, four and a half hours, with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we discuss modern cinema's best attempt to simultaneously deify and demystify the 20th century's most enigmatic revolutionary pinup, Che. 
Welcome everyone to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners, Katie and Liam. Like that, got it right, right out the can, and just boom. Look at you doing my Dinner. job. You remembered to introduce <laughs> yourself to the nice people. Today we are here to talk about an interesting two-part film, Che, Part One and Two, released in 2008. I think these were released a month apart. Is that right? Uh. The release is a, is a mixed bag. A very, very. I'll just leave that to Katie. Anyways, <laughs> around the beginning of 2008, these films came out. And yeah, I'm just going to pass it off to Katie because there's so much to say. I don't want to start now. Here's Katie with our mission briefing. While Steven Soderbergh directed Che, it was really Benicio Del Toro who was the driving force behind the film. He was the one who initially optioned the rights to tell the story of Che's failed Bolivian rebellion. But through multiple screenwriters and directors, the film evolved to be an epic four hours split between two films, one showing Che's actions during the Cuban Revolution, and the other about the end of his life in Bolivia. Del Toro researched the part for seven years and spoke to everyone he could who knew Che, from Fidel Castro to the man's few surviving guerrilla fighters to his wife and children. And his efforts paid off, as it's universally considered to be a strong and affecting performance. Produced for only $65 million, the film's release at Cannes was, well, not a smash success, caught people's interest in many different ways. The reviews were thoroughly mixed, with most weighing in that it's a well-made but flawed film. And of course, it has reviews that fall into either extreme of good or bad. But it was fascinating how wide-ranging the criticism really was. Generally, in film reviews, you will see the same few things get called out as the weak link, such as a poor script or bad lighting. But with Che, the bits that some reviewers found utterly tedious were beloved by others. Personally, I think this is due to how vague the film is. It allows for a lot of interpretation, which can be a good or bad thing depending on your perspective. I didn't know anything about Che or this film before watching it, and I have a lot to say regarding the wild variation between the first and second parts. But there's an idea in art called a diptych, when there are two pieces of art that are meant to be presented side by side. And Soderbergh has said that that was partially his intention while making this. There's a long history to the colonial occupation of Cuba and the many rebellions that have happened there. And the film kind of just starts off in the 50s, where part one, that is, where Fidel and Che are in Mexico sort of planning the future. And it doesn't tell you that much about what happened before. So... I'll give you guys a little bit of background on what happened before. Shout out to this eight-page research paper that Bill Fisher wrote for us. He has a PhD in Latin American studies, so he was very excited and the perfect person to do the research on this episode. As a side note, if you don't know how this works, if you have a background in history and you don't have to have a degree or anything, just if you're interested in it, you can get on our research list. And when we send out the research requests for films in advance, 
if it's something you like or you're passionate about, you can jump in and do some research for us. This helps us get a lot of background on the film so we can have a better conversation about it. The Cuban Revolution of 1956 to 1959 came out of a long line of revolutions in Cuba, but each of the previous ones ended up failing or being unsatisfying in some way. From 1868 to 1878, Cuba fought for independence from Spain, only to sue for peace after 10 years. Spain had been the colonial power there for four centuries. In 1879, another war for independence broke out, but only lasted one year. From 1895 to 1898, Cuban rebels fought against the Spanish and had them very close to defeat. When the United States intervened and seized military control over the island, ignoring the rebel army and government and establishing Jim Crow-style segregation in Cuba when it hadn't existed before. The U.S. left in 1901, but not before sticking a clause in the Cuban Constitution, the Platt Amendment, that gave the U.S. the right to take Cuba back over again when it felt like doing so, which it did from 1906 to 1909. In 1933, a group of Cuban university students and junior army officers overthrew a dictator named Geraldo Machado, and the 100-day administration of Ramon Grau, a professor at the University of Havana, instituted a number of progressive pro-worker reforms. They also got rid of the Platt Amendment, but these social reforms were nipped in the bud by a military coup led by young officer Fulgencio Batista, who acted with the encouragement of U.S. diplomat Sumner Wells. Batista held power until 1944, when free and fair elections delivered civilian governments in 1944 and 1948. Technically, Batista himself had been elected as a civilian in 1940. However, both of these civilian administrations were very corrupt and disappointing to idealistic young Cubans. Then in 1952, a reformer from the Orthodox Party looked poised to win election as president when Fulgencio Batista, who still held huge amounts of sway in the Cuban military and was looked to by many upper-class Cubans as a strong figure who would keep order, stepped in and canceled the elections, once again seizing dictatorial power. A young lawyer by the name of Fidel Castro was a congressional candidate for the Orthodox Party in 1952 and likely would have been elected to Congress if the elections hadn't been canceled. Castro decided that the peaceful electoral path to reform Cuba was impossible and decided to begin an armed revolution. On July 26, 1953, Castro and several dozen others attempted to begin the revolution by seizing an army barracks in Santiago in eastern Cuba. They failed and most were killed or arrested. Castro would later name his guerrilla insurgency the M26J, 26th of July movement. You can actually see these patches in the film on their shoulders. Fidel Castro chose to defend himself in court, and his defense outlined a manifesto for the political and social reform of Cuba. The manifesto concluded with him saying, Condemn me. It does not matter. History will absolve me. This history will absolve me speech was written down and smuggled out of the courthouse and circulated in Cuba among opponents of Fulgencio Batista's regime. Castro was convicted, imprisoned. After that, Castro was let out of prison due to international pressure on Batista to release political prisoners. Upon his release, Castro soon realized he was under constant surveillance, so chose to go into exile in order to be able to plan another armed insurgency in Cuba. He made his way to Mexico City, where he met Che Guevara. And that is basically the history that leads us up to the film. Then we see Che and Fidel in Mexico City starting to discuss the future of Cuba and the revolution that they then eventually brought uh, 80 plus fighters with them, went to Cuba, and then started the process that you see in part one.
So my question for you two this time around is a simple one. After watching both the movies, did you feel that these are two parts of a singular work or are they kind of their own thing? So the two halves are very, very different, but I really do think that it works better as a entire piece. And I have a couple of reasons for that. One is that they're based on two separate texts as to like why they feel so different. Both of them are based on writings of Che Guevara, but one is from like diary entries and one just judging from the titles. I have not read either of these. Part one is based on reminiscences from the revolution in Cuba, like, or I can't remember exactly what the, the full title is, but that sounds like a much more like polished memoir as opposed to diaries from the Bolivian revolution, which spoiler alert, he died at the end of. So this is more just kind of like an adulterated stream of consciousness writing that they're adapting from would be my assumption there. So I think that is one reason and probably the most fundamental reason why they feel so different or why they were, why they chose to make them so differently. But yeah, it actually, for some reason does feel like a cohesive piece to me. And it honestly, although the difference is a little jarring, it honestly reminds me of a little bit of apocalypse. Now you're just sort of like rolling along in apocalypse now and you're on board. And then all of a sudden fat, angry Marlon Brando shows up and it turns into a completely fucking different movie where nobody has any lines anymore. And like the lighting sucks and it's weird and super trippy. And like, I don't, it doesn't make much sense, but you can't really have the movie without the fat Marlon Brando parts. Right. So Che part two feels like the fat Marlon Brando of Che. (laughs) Except it's a skinny Benicio del Toro. <laughs> Except it's a skinnier Benicio del Toro. Yeah. But it, so in this skinny. particular instance, skinny Benicio del Toro is fat Marlon Brando. That that part of Che is the fat Marlon Brando part of like when, when Brando was starting to get crazy fat old man syndrome. Other other notable examples of crazy fat old man syndrome, Orson Welles. Comes to mind right away. <laughs> Gerard Depardieu. Gerard Depardieu is a good one. I would argue Ernest Hemingway Mm. got crazy fat old man syndrome, (laughs) you know, not to cast aspersions on anyone, but to some extent, maybe Liza Minnelli. (laughs) Oh my God. So she turned into a fat old man. That's interesting. I can't wait for Leonardo DiCaprio to get it because I mean, dude's starting to get a little jowly and man, when he goes off the rails, I am going to bake myself a cake. So that's that's my answer to that. I think they do work better together. So you guys are going to have to put me on an egg timer because I feel like after uh, almost four or five days of doing research, uh, just to let the audience in on this. So for once, I felt fully prepared for this conversation. Like I really had the time to dig into the research, watch both films, watch the making of it, which is really important. I'm going to bring a lot of that in here. I also watched The Motorcycle Diaries on Bill's recommendation. I had seen it years ago, but it had been a while. And I would highly recommend that for anyone who's interested in this story and interested in learning more about Che, especially him as a person and kind of where his ideas came from, go watch The Motorcycle Diaries from 2004. I do I do have a, an interjection there. One of the reasons why that one is, I would say, more universally acclaimed than Che, a lot of that I think probably has to do with the writer. Hmm. 
because the script was written by a playwright, one of my favorite playwrights. His name oh. is Jose Rivera. Okay. And he also, mostly on the strength of the Motorcycle Diaries, he was the one who they hired to adapt on the road into a oh. screenplay. Okay. But his plays are nuts and they are fantastic. Oh, cool. It's it's like pregnant men and people aging backwards and like all kinds of really interesting stuff. But he's a fabulous writer. And I got a chance to meet him briefly. Uh, and he's nice guy as well. Just a, a terrific human being. He was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for the Motorcycle Diaries. I don't think he won that year, but that's the thing that stood out to me most on that movie. Apart from the performances were excellent, but it was really had a great foundation on the script that they got to move forward with. And that director is uh, Walter Salles. Yeah, and I agree with that. Uh, the Motorcycle Diaries is more, it's really beautiful. It's slow. It's atmospheric. They, they really filmed it all over South America. So a lot of the scenery matches what's going on. And it views like a poem. It's really a beautiful piece of poetry, I think. Very internal. And based, again, on Che's Diaries, when he was a 23-year-old and was almost a doctor, he was kind of in his last year of studies and decided to take a year off to travel South America with his best friend. And that is where he sort of meets a lot of the poor, oppressed people of a bunch of different Latin American countries who, especially in that time, yeah, a lot of those governments were dictatorships, a lot of them propped up by the U.S. So that's where kind of his anti-imperialist ideas came from in seeing how poor people were being mistreated by the rich and by these governments. So it gives you a lot better background on how Che became who he was and where his ideals came from, because regardless of how you feel about modern politics, I don't think anyone could argue that he wasn't a man of high ideals and really believed strongly in what he believed in to the point that he was obviously willing to die for that. But to answer Katie's question, I honestly think that I, I understand based on the making of it and some interviews with Soderbergh, why they ended up doing it in two parts. They were on this crazy schedule. They filmed part two before part one, by the way, part of that was so Benicio del Toro could kind of gain weight quickly as opposed to having to lose weight quickly, which is obviously easier. And it also sounds like they were editing as they went along. Like the the production schedule was faster and crazier than for a, a, a TV show. And I think that adds to some of the problems of these films. But <laughs> to not get way off track, I think that this should have been a three hour film in one part as opposed to four and a half hours of two parts because... In my opinion, I don't think these films are too long. I think there's too much fat in them. So really, a, a, a huge part of the problem for me is in the editing. I think if you just re-edited these two films, you could make a much better paced, much better film. If you split it up into six acts, three for the first one and three for the second one, I loved the first two of those six acts, and the other four were... You know, every scene was too long. The acts were too long themselves. You're seeing a lot of the same things over and over again. And 
I don't know how you guys feel about Soderbergh's other films or, you know, but I, I can't help knowing what I know now about the schedule they were on and the way they were doing the editing and the fact that like the film got finished three days before they sent it to Cannes mm-hmm. that had they had a month or two to do proper scheduled editing the way a film schedule usually allows for, I think they would have put out a much different product. So I think that was something they sort of shot themselves in the foot on that one. They were doing like a make a movie in 48 hours challenge, essentially, on on a professional level. Well, and they released it at the festival, at the Cannes Film Festival, as one piece, right? Right. Right. There was an intermission in between, which at least one critic mentioned that they offered free sandwiches and Kit Kats. Four and a half hour ordeal. Katie, what's your answer to your own question? Um... It's a rarity, folks. I get to be the Liam this episode. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I brought up the concept of a diptych because my uh, my black and white uh, photography teacher taught us about them. And it, that was one of our assignments was to create one. And uh, that man inspired me and has stuck with me through all these years, mostly because he was a cantankerous bastard like any good art teacher is. And when I read that Soderbergh made these like that i was like okay that makes sense because typically in at least in photography when you're creating a diptych you are trying to create two very singular pieces of art that work both alone and together and that individually they tell their own stories but then when you put them together they create an entirely new story and a new perspective and yeah he did that he he sure did that but not well (laughs) Oh, well, in my mind, there is not enough purpose in these. They meander. There's lots of meandering through things. Everything is very thoughtful and slow. And I I have a lot of patience for films like that. You know, I, I one of my favorite films is, is Mother, which is meandering as all get out. Yeah, but when shit pops off in Mother, like it goes bonkers. It fucking does. I, and that's why I love it. This one never really goes full full mother no and it it's taking itself so seriously and it works as a diptych and that if you watch the first part and didn't watch the second part it would still work for you probably better than the other way around and and vice versa you could watch the second part and not see the first part and it still works and but if you watch them together for me at least it was painfully obvious that something went terribly wrong with this film because There's no cohesive line that runs through them that if they are meant to truly be the same film, you would need that. You would need some form of transition. And so it works better if it's like, well, I want this to reflect something. Then I think Soderbergh succeeded in that realm. But God. Are we at your breakdown already? No, no. (laughs) Katie's out. She's just going to leave for the rest of the episode. No, but that's, I think, the biggest problem with the film for me was how scatterbrained the whole damn thing is both part one and part two, because they're very different styles and techniques of films for sure. So Katie, I really think that if you're going to step up to the, to the plate to be the Liam, (laughs) I need to be mean. That was some of the tamest Liaming, not even a single f bomb. I mean, come on, not a no fucks. Oh, we no, have to wait. No. We have to just earn wait. the explicit button on the podcast. Like otherwise, I'm going to take it off for this one episode. Yeah, don't do that. Just wait, because I don't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to bust it all out. 
I watched this with my poor husband, and he was just like, okay, I'm just going to build my Gundam model, and you you rant, it's fine, because <laughs> I was very frustrated. So despite the fact that I would love to talk about this as one cohesive film, that it is not. Let's get into what, and Kitty can tell us more about this, but I'm pretty sure in general, the critical perception, review, and Rotten Tomato, like all of those things in aggregate, the first film is much more successful than the second one. So let's talk about part one. Let's start with you, Katie, since you hadn't seen these before, and it sounds like you didn't know that much about Cuban history before this. What, what was your experience going into part one? So I haven't seen a whole lot of Soderbergh's films, but I, I love Benicio Del Toro. And it comes across as it is very it is trying very hard to be an art film <laughs> and is trying to say something very big and serious. And overall, I thought it was interesting, but I think it is limited. It is very limiting for viewers who don't have that knowledge. It kind of felt like what I imagined my mom must have felt when my niece um, made her sit down and watch all the Harry Potter movies. Mm. Where you get into the later Harry Potter movies and you're like, I have no fucking idea what's going on right now. But yay, they're doing stuff. Yay. Because right. at this, I'm watching this. That's how I felt. I was like, like I really like the beginning scene when they're at um, the dinner party and all of that. And that's an interesting opening. Then once they make it to Cuba, it feels very much like we're just jumping from point to point to point. And if you are familiar with the history, you're going to recognize these points. If you are not familiar with the history, well then fuck you. <laughs> Catch up. It's kind of how I felt watching the majority of it. And there is very little in the way of characterization of any of these people outside of this individual moment. And I understand that was a purposeful choice, but for me it does not work here because I had no history with these people, so they're all just blanks, if you will. But you did know all the regions of Cuba by the time you got through the internet. I, you know, I <laughs> I watched it go on the screen for two minutes of just like I, and, and it had no effect whatsoever on my enjoyment of the film or my information about the film. What do you think the point, and Dan, maybe they, maybe they touched on this in the making of, each part of the film starts with a little quick visual I don't know about quick, but <laughs> geography lesson. Nothing is quick about this movie. <laughs> where they where they they have the map up and then they like highlight different regions and just a little label comes up with what that region is. Did they think that was going to actually give people a a frame of reference to go off of? So I can speak to this because Soderbergh himself spoke exactly to this point and broke it down for both parts. So I'll immediately break my rule about talking about part one and talk about both of those map scenes because I think they're very different and the intent is different. And I also I like the first and I don't like the second one. Granted, <laughs> they're, they're both a little too long. I think, again, if you had tightened it up a little bit, you would have accomplished the same thing without just dragging in part one, he's trying to show you. So the first thing he does is show you where Havana is in the Northwest and then where the Sierra Maestra mountains are, which are way on the bottom part of the Southeastern part of the Island. The Island's kind of shaped uh, like a, a backward sea. And the intent there was to show you how, because the rebels landed basically when they came from Mexico city in 
that region. And the base of operations was out of the Sierra Maestra mountains. And so he was trying to show you how far they had to go from there to take over Havana, which is where they eventually landed, because that was all done through fighting on land. Because he doesn't just go through the map from west to east. He shows you where the mountains are, and then he shows you Havana. And then he unnecessarily, in my opinion, shows you all the other regions of Cuba to sort of be like, this is what Cuba looks like, which is great. I'm sure most casual viewers don't know the regions of Cuba. But to me, the only important geographical part of that is where the mountains are versus where Havana is. So I get the intent. Like a lot of the things in terms of knowing what Soderbergh's intent was and how it panned out, great intentions, poor execution, in my opinion, that theme is going to come up a lot here. In the second part, where then it turns into this very, because South America is like one of the easiest maps to memorize. It's a huge landmass and continent with only like nine countries in it. So it's very easy. If you had to memorize the countries of South America, it's like Brazil's half of it. You know, it's like not that hard to do. And so he's slowly going through every single country, including again, these countries that have nothing to do with the film. And I'm like, thank you for the fifth grade lesson on South American geography. But like, this does not need to be two minutes long. Now, Soderbergh, what he wanted to show is how landlocked Bolivia is and how Che started there because he thought as the revolution was successful, it would have sort of given him easy access to all the other countries. In reality, that was probably part of the problem is how landlocked they were and how isolated they were. And that was part of what led to the failure of that revolution. But both Jackie and I watching it were like, you know, it's rare that we say this, but we would have loved some exposition at the beginning of both these parts. I think if you had written a nice, tight two or three paragraph script you could have covered in part one you could have covered like the history that i've covered in this episode but very briefly and sort of explained where castro and che were coming from where they were at at this point and then you could have done the same thing for part two which they do a little bit at the beginning of the film where castro gives a speech etc yeah again I, i think the map scenes are way too long it's like they're both treating the audience like they're intelligent and like they're idiots at the same time. <laughs> it's very, uh, it's very opaque. Like yeah. What they're trying to tell you. It's like, what am I supposed to take away from this? So that's the problem. Exactly. The attempt is to give you some background and exposition. And in the end, it feels condescending where they're like, you don't know shit about geography. Let me show you this map. But again, right. that wasn't his intent. I just think, again, the execution was poor. I actually never got the feeling that it was a condescending sort of thing. So kudos to them. <laughs> I could see people thinking that because it is just kind of like, oh, that's a map that you're going to show me very slowly. But that was never the vibe that I got. What I what I kind of got was that they had a strong intention with doing it in part one. And for symmetry's sake, they felt obligated to do it in part two when they didn't have as much of a need to. For sure. It'd be like doing a crawl at the beginning of Star Wars to put people into the place where we're opening up with this brand new story. And then like, deciding not to do it for Empire Strikes Back when you've just watched the first movie a year ago. The other thing that I found very jarring in this first one is the abrupt changes in style. And I think it by the end, 
it worked for me having those abrupt changes because if it's meant to convey, you know, in, when it's grainy and black and white, it's it's meant to be more like newsreel footage mm-hmm. of him in New York being interviewed after the success of uh, the Cuban Revolution. And there are some parts of this that feel all of those scenes when he's in New York feel so modern and like catchy and like he's trying to draw the audience in. And then the scenes where he's in Cuba are much more slow paced and plotting and trying to give us some idea of who Che was to the people that he worked with and inspired and all of that. But without getting to know Che as a human being, we never get to know who Che is as just a human being. He is always a representative figure in these films, I think. So I think that's interesting. I think that in this, the, I think the intent was probably to allow you to know Che by his actions and how he interacts with his men and the attitudes that he strikes and like a couple of there's like some weird throwaway lines here that I feel like speak volumes that they don't really jump out at you a whole lot. One being that he has a wife and kid in Mexico. Yep. Oh, that was very jarring. So he's got a wife and kid in Mexico, but then next time we see him with a wife and many children, it's his fellow comrade from the revolution so somewhere along the way first wife and first child have disappeared into the background flitted off into the ether yeah i think it's trying to be honest about the warts i mean no i because there's also the there's also the line where he uses the f slur which i think is not i think not inconsistent with the reputation that castro's cuba had Towards the LGBTQ community, yeah, that it was not especially friendly, and that it, it was it was murderously hateful. Yes, yes, yes. So I don't know. Maybe I'm reading this 2008 film from 2021 a little too much, but like I think the inclusion of that was basically not to soften his edges without necessarily going into everything. Like you have people out in the streets that are shouting at him that he's a murderer when he's going to the UN, Mm -hmm. but they don't really expand on that. However, there's a couple of things that like, I think at one point you see him signing like an order for execution for the police chief where they found the torture instruments in the basement. Mm -hmm. There's the obvious fear in the one guy who's like, I don't want to surrender to Che. I want to surrender to like some other, any other chief. Any other one, just I don't want to surrender to this guy, indicating that he has this kind of unflinching, bloodthirsty reputation that precedes him as as much as what he means to the people. Yeah, I mean, again, it's interesting when you watch the interviews with the director and the screenwriter talking about. So the first was the first treatment was a 160 page treatment called Gorilla, where they were going to do the whole thing as one film. And it was a little bit too traditional and a phrase that we use a lot on this podcast is don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. 
And I think this film suffers from that a little bit in the sense that Soderbergh was adamant that he wanted to kind of lay out the facts and that he didn't want anything in the film that didn't happen in real life. So, you know, all the UN speeches are pulled directly from Che's UN speeches. And I do want to talk about those scenes a little bit more because those scenes are my favorites in part one. I really, really love those. But everything he shows is factual. Again, I feel the execution was poor. So, for example, at the end of part one, they don't show you them going into Havana. And I'd have to dig deeper into the history here. But when Che is getting called a mass murder, et cetera, this is more along the lines of leaders who order executions. You know, I mean, obviously he killed people in the actual guerrilla fighting, but I don't think it's like Che was participating in death squads uh, himself once they had won. It's just they put the previous administration on trial for their atrocities, and they had 200 to 500 previous administration members executed after having military trials, etc. So he was responsible for that and led a lot of that. And I think that's where the mass murderer, quote unquote, calls come from. Yeah, that is exactly where it comes from. He had 176 people murdered through summary trials. Right. Some would say executed, but again, matter of perspective. So Soderbergh seems to be wanting to show a balanced portrayal. Like he doesn't feel like a communist that's making a film about like, let's glorify Che. Like, I don't think that was the intent. And I think he does try and show the warts, but again, sort of bad pacing, bad editing. The third act is so goddamn slow and they show you so much of this battle that's just a tactical battle of taking this high ground in the town so that they can like win or whatever. And it's like 45 minutes of them. It's like they're breaking down the walls in these uh, rows of houses so that they can go in the one side and get to the church. Man, you know, it's bad when the battle scene is the part that's dragging for you. Right. Uh-huh. And, and the other thing is I can't fault like the action, the shooting, that first action scene in part one, most of the action scenes are great in this when they're concise and the first assault on the army barracks that they do in part one, I was like, whoa, this feels really real. The sound design is exceptional. The violence is gory and feels real. And you like people are dying and it doesn't feel fake at all. The budget was there for the squibs, etc. And it feels dangerous. And I know we're going to talk a lot about the handheld nature of a lot of the shooting here. And it's in a lot of the action scenes, the handheld makes a lot of sense. The shaky cam, like you feel like you're one of the soldiers taking part in this assault. And so there's that initial assault scene. That's great. The, I watched some of the behind the scenes stuff when the tank fires onto the car in that one scene, I actually watched just documentary footage of it. And all of that was done on camera and it looks re- it looks like a real tank firing at a real car. Now, obviously it was a blank with a car with an explosive in it because it would have been too dangerous to fire a real shell. But it, it there's no like, you know, post or CGI or anything in that as far as I could tell. It looks real. But again, they also chose to show you them like sledgehammering through four or five walls. And you're like, OK, I get it. They're doing what they need to do tactically to take this church, get the town to surrender so that they can take over this town. And that's kind of the end of the revolution in part one where it's like, oh, yeah, Havana's going to be easy and like we're done here. But I feel like you could have cut that part down by 75% and shown us them rolling into Havana and showing us a a montage of the trials and of Che presiding over some of this and of them ordering executions. Like you could have taken 
45 minutes or you know 30 minutes of that last act and done a 10 minute montage of what happened and them finally taking over and i think it would have been more educational more balanced more well-rounded and told us more about what happened afterwards again just poor execution here's a question because i i honestly don't know the history how much was che involved directly with the taking of Havana. So the research doesn't specify, and I don't know the answer to that. I can tell you that the kind of strange ending of part one is a real story. That whole turn that car around. We're not driving a stolen car. Like, I don't care if that car is Batista's himself. Like you're not driving a stolen car to Havana to go take right. it back. That was a real anecdote that may have been apocryphal, but according to sources, it really happened. And they did go to Havana, so I'm assuming Che was there. But by the time they got to Havana, I don't actually think there was a lot of fighting there. Bill or anyone else who knows the history, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Batista got packed his shit and packed some bags full yeah. of money and escaped. And the U.S. withdrew their support from Batista when they saw what was happening. So I think by the time any of the main fighting forces who were collecting new fighters in every town that they won over, by the time they rolled into Havana, I'm pretty sure it was more a victory parade. By the end of 1958, it was becoming clear to the United States that Batista's regime was doomed, and the decision was made in Washington to pull the rug out from under Batista. He fled the country on New Year's Eve, taking lots of cash with him, as dictators always do when they flee. Just happened in Afghanistan. Dictators and CEOs, baby. Mm-hmm. Gotta get that golden parachute. The U.S. had decided, essentially, that it was better to try to work with the rebels and manage the outcome rather than continue to prop up Batista. On January 1st, 1959, one of Batista's subordinates seized control of the rickety remains of the regime and called for a provisional government. Castro rejected this and called for total capitulation to the M26J and also called for a general strike throughout Cuba. This succeeded in getting the reins of power totally in his hands by a week later. So again, I don't think they actually got into very much combat in taking Havana. I think by the time they got to Havana, it was a matter of more of like diplomatic negotiations. And within a week, they were in control of the country. Because that seems to me like what that was kind of what I got from it was that they went to Havana. But this was kind of like the end of Che's story in that revolution. Like he didn't really strike me as a huge in spite of him addressing the UN, he doesn't really strike one as a diplomat. Right. Like those kind of like negotiations sort of stuff doesn't really seem like the sort of thing that he'd exactly be like elbows deep into. And that's fine. What I'm arguing is they should have maybe skipped that part or done a very quick montage of that. But he was involved in the first couple of years of the new government. Mm -hmm. He was the president of their banking system. He was the economic minister. To, to great failure, the banking system right. thing. that was He did not succeed at that. He presided over these tribunals where they executed former members of the Batista regime. So that's what I'm saying they should have shown is a quick montage of what his participation was in the new government before he sort of disappeared and then reappeared in Bolivia a year or two later or whatever. Oh, he also perpetrated the attempted to foment rebellion in the Congo and they just skip over that. They make reference to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With a line or two. Yes. Yes. I, I agree. I think that Soderbergh really tries to say like, Oh, we're just trying to prevent present a, 
an unbiased perspective on this man's life and and we're trying to be uh, have some distance but i i would say he failed miserably because this is so obviously a i, I won't say fawning but i'm thinking it love letter to how amazing che guevara is you you just said it I know I did it on purpose. <laughs> this is, this is so, and when asked about like, well, why didn't you show these scenes that show Guevara's side that is less than optimal? He was like, well, I just wasn't really interested. That, that wasn't the interesting part for, for, of Che to me. I wanted to show this perspective, which that's fine. I, I have no problem with you doing that, but it is absolutely a biased perspective to, create a four and a half hour long biopic about someone and show them almost exclusively as some kind of ubermensch at a certain point. And it becomes trite for me after a very short period of time. And it's more a crime of omission than anything else. Everything we see happen and most of his dialogue is like pulled directly from his diary. So sure, he could have lied about some of the things he said, but at least it is like what he said that he said um, or what other people reported that he said. So again, what we see is relatively accurate for what happened. It's all the stuff Soderbergh chooses to not shoot. And it's the things that were edited out or kept in that again, show, show you not enough of the other side. And I felt I could see someone arguing that it's like, well, no, I mean, they did show him, you know, punishing deserters who raped and kill raped a teenager and killed the family and burned down their hut. And I'm like that you cannot take. That's justifiable. Right. You can't take him presiding over a tribunal that ended up executing 200 to 500 people. And I'm not even speaking to whether that's justifiable or not. Like the, that regime may have been terrible. That Those trials may have been right. fair. They probably weren't. But I'm just giving them the benefit of the doubt. I would not call him a mass murderer based on presiding over trials where former members of the administration were executed. But if your answer to show him sort of being a hard ass and sticking to his guns and executing people when it was necessary is to show the execution of these dirtbags who desert and go rape a teenager and kill the family and burn down a hut. Not equivalent. Because when I saw them doing that, I was like, if I was in charge of that unit, I would have, I would have executed those soldiers myself. Right. In those circumstances, that's... that's 100% justified. That's the appropriate justified response in this kind of armed conflict. Right. So you're showing a, a completely righteous and justified execution and then not showing the things that maybe were somewhere in between, but we don't know it. The, again, the film doesn't show us that. So. so it struck me and maybe I'm, maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but that didn't necessarily indicate to me that it's like, Oh, this is going to show Che as being like, this is him being the executioner. I, I'm saying someone could argue that that wasn't necessarily right. my argument, but, but what that seemed to be communicating to me as far as like presenting a more balanced picture just sort of across the board is there were likely many abuses by the communist dictatorship of Fidel Castro. It is not a perfect organism. It is bad in many respects, but I think what that was sort of intended to show is that there were abuses from the beginning, but it that wasn't the main idea. 
You know what I mean? Like they didn't take power to abuse power. See, I think that I, I just can't take that assumption from what this film offers, like because it chooses to be so in the moment where there are certain parts of this film that are supposed to be filmed as though, you know, you're Guevara, like when he's being executed at the very end. This film feels like it is trying to be very much of the moment and judging or relaying Che's experiences and what it was like for him in the day-to-day life and why he made these choices that he made. It does a very surface-level version of that, which is the only way we can interpret it, because the film chooses not to explore anything beyond Guevara as a military leader and... To a certain extent, philosopher. So I didn't really have a problem necessarily with the limited viewpoint. I think because I kind of knew going in that these were based on his writings. Mm -hmm. This isn't like it was, it was compiled by a bunch of historians and, and journalists and biographers. This is taking the stuff that he said and wrote in again, I haven't read them, but I assume Two vastly different formats. One probably a little bit more of a polished memoir. The other just like shit he was writing down in Bolivia and taking what would be considered his greatest victory, his his most successful revolution, and his arguably least successful revolution where he died at the end and playing those two off of each other as like sort of a, not even really a bookend because it's the whole thing, but This is something that is said on the IMDb trivia. I don't know if you guys read this at all. Mm -hmm. It says that the film is a tribute to the Marxist notion of advancement through two conflicting ideas known as dialectics with its division into halves with two tempos, two color schemes, two aspect ratios, and two approaches to chronology. Each half focuses on a different revolution, both fundamentally the same in theory, but vastly different in outcome. Which I didn't necessarily see it paying tribute to Marxist theory. Yeah, I feel like that part of it's relatively irrelevant. No, it's 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 an artistic theory of Marxism that I'm uh, okay. vaguely familiar with. I don't know if that's the artistic intent to be like, oh, well, I set this up like dialectics and Marxism. Mm. I have no idea if that was the idea behind it. But I think that that is the reason why they chose these two texts to make this adaptation based on. So Soderbergh is known for a one for you, a one for me is what they call it, where he will make something wildly successful for uh, the studio. And before this it had been his Ocean's Eleven series. Mm-hmm. And then he makes whatever the fuck he wants, like traffic and I can absolutely see that being how he was going about this, because everything I read uh, that had some interview with him, to a certain extent, that's tempered by Benicio Del Toro's involvement. But this is very much meant to be an art piece about Che Guevara, not necessarily a logical film in the way that we would think of it. Yeah, definitely his intent was to do... He wasn't making a movie. He was making cinema. Mm-hmm. He has a few cynical opinions about kind of like why this wasn't successful. N- not that he didn't admit to sort of where they made some mistakes or some missteps, but he's kind of like, it's just not the seventies anymore where that many people are going to enjoy something that's like trying to be artistic, which again, I totally disagree with because 
There are people like you guys, for example, who really enjoy the MCU, but also know what the fuck you're talking about when it comes to artistic cinema and theater, etc. So I think he he's a little overly cynical, probably after this experience because of that. But I do agree that he was trying to make an art film essentially out of this. And I and I also agree that this would have fucking been pulling on awards like pairs of pants back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, especially in the 70s, because it would have been present in that moment, you know, because all of this stuff takes place in the mid 19 or the second movie, at least takes place in the mid 1960s. So it, it would have been something that people would have really recognized and would have resonated with them. And now it's like. Well, and then go to the movies for four and a half hours and welcome the experience. And love it. Right. Because previous to that, you get a lot of cotton candy fluff and not much else in film. Yeah. I mean, God bless him. Maybe he's not the kind of person to do a director's cut, but like, pay me 50 grand. I'll make a director's cut out of this. Like, I would, or, or like a, you know, a reduced version where we turn it into one film. Again, I think. It's called a fan edit, Dan. Right. Thank you. And no one's paying me for it, but. <laughs> Yeah, nobody pays for fans. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely think you could edit this into something. Soderbergh is definitely making an art film, and I'll give a lot of allowances for art films. I like Julian Schnabel, who is makes the most artsy of all art films ever. But I think this feels too disjointed to be successful, and it is. As I, I texted both of you as we were watching it, I was like, "Well, this feels masturbatory at a certain point." Yeah, I fall somewhere below where Katie's at on that in terms that I didn't feel like it was as self-indulgent as you did. But again, I have to go back to this point that to me, it's great idea, poor execution. So, for example, my favorite parts of part one were definitely the UN scenes. Todo esto, señores delegados, esta disposición nueva de un continente de América está plasmada y resumida en el grito que día a día nuestras masas proclaman como expresión irrefutable de su decisión de lucha, paralizando la mano armada del invasor. Esa proclama es patria o muerte. Just because I'm watching it and I'm like, wow, these speeches are so fucking powerful. And also, if you get a chance, I'll, maybe I'll post the link in the group, but Castro's speech in his defense because he was a lawyer so he defended himself in his trial against the batista regime and i read that whole speech or at least the excerpt from it and it's like a couple of pages it's pretty quick read and when you're reading it he breaks down the injustices going on in cuba what they would do about it and why history will absolve him which is the name of the speech is history will absolve me and that speech is super inspirational castro didn't start out as a communist the the government sort of just because of a lot of it was, you know, the Soviet support, et cetera. But like Mm -hmm. communism was not a big part of their idealism initially. It was really armed rebellion against oppression. And if I had been a poor farmer when Castro was giving these speeches or when the speech got out, I think I would have picked up arms and followed him, to be honest. Like very inspirational, very on point, very real things about calling out U.S. imperialism and these capitalist systems and, you know, the United Fruit Company and all these corporations that were just raping and pillaging these poor countries. And he was like, Cuba is a rich country that could produce so much, but all these fields are laying fallow because these companies own the land and these poor farmers. So like one of the problems was the sugarcane farmers 
were renting land and would work for four months out of the year producing sugarcane and then basically be homeless and starving for the rest of the year. And, you know, all these problems were compounding and exacerbating. In the meantime, the mafia and all these rich people were having a blast in Havana. And it was like this amazing place to go on vacation. Interestingly, this was in terms of racial segregation, even when Batista was the president of the country, because he was mixed race, he was not allowed into like the nicest country club in Havana. How insane is that? He was the president of the country. <laughs> like, I'm like, Jesus, the what? Like the dictators <laughs> not allowed in the... Like, not just the president, the dictator of the country. That's like telling Stalin where he's allowed to go in the Soviet Union. Pretty crazy. And so, yeah, but anyways, back to the UN speeches. So I'm I'm pretty sure those are 100% verbatim. And I really loved how they give you a little bit of each delegate's 10-minute response to him and then him getting 10 minutes to respond to them. And the whole time I'm looking at the set and I'm going, wow, this set is fucking amazing. And I was thinking about, you know, I don't know anything about production design, but the whole time I'm like, wow, this looks so accurate. And I'm like, okay, I guess you could probably start in a college lecture hall for 400 people, rip out the seats, redo them, you know, put the big UN thing up there. I'm like, this would have been an expensive fucking set to build, but they did an amazing job. Turns out it's not a set and they filmed it. Not only did they film it in the assembly hall of the UN, but in 2007 when they were probably filming this it was about to get renovated and they it took them 10 months to get permission to film that there but they got it in just under the wire before they renovated it and modernized that entire room so there's something exceptional about that in my opinion just the way it looks and the way even Soderbergh was like yeah when we were filming that I literally in my mind was like wow this is this is pretty close this must have been what it felt like to sit there and listen to Che Guevara give a speech Now, that's the good of it, because again, it's one of my favorite things about part one. On the downside, I was channeling Liam so hard watching this (laughs) because they decided to do this like shaky handheld cam the entire time. And I'm like, it's a fucking speech at the UN. The original speech probably had a camera on a tripod filming the actual speech that you could probably find on YouTube. Literally, I'm quoting Liam, like, plant the fucking camera down. Like, why are you bouncing it around like you're doing this POV view when it's a speech at the UN? That did made zero sense to me. I agree. I think with the newsreel kind of feel that they were going for, it almost looked like they were trying to, like, recreate the style of the Zapruder film. Yeah, which is unnecessary. Right. Yeah, not needed. It's not a fan film. Like, a journalist would have had a tripod if he had been filming that speech, right? Yes. They would have sent a cameraman to do to do something like that. There were small handheld cameras back then. Well, yeah, they would have had Super 8s and stuff like that. But not something that a journalist would typically be using. But set the goddamn thing down on a table or something. Like, there's no right. reason for it to be bounced around. <laughs> he talks about how, I believe this is in part two, but you see an aircraft coming overhead and bombing a shack with like the peasants just being able to jump out of the way right before it happens. And then they're using a handheld shaky cam. And I'm like, that makes sense. It is giving you the intensity of the action in the moment. Like that perfectly makes sense. This was also Che was the first movie to be shot in 4k mm-hmm. and the first movie to be shot using the red cinema camera. Now, do you know, do you guys know anything in particular about that camera? Because from the interviews I watched, the main... It's the fucking tits is what yeah. it is. Like that camera, that camera fucks. Okay. So Red Cinema, it 
absolutely revolutionized digital filmmaking. It was fairly cost prohibitive, but not bonkers cost prohibitive. You could have probably gotten like a red cinema camera for somewhere between five and $10,000. So a regular person could get one. Most people couldn't afford it, but for a small production, you could definitely do it. Yeah, for a small production, you could you could get one, and it shot in 4K, mm-hmm. which it was one of the first cameras to shoot in 4K. And it was down to the wire. The company that was producing it, because it was the you know literally version one of that camera, they ended up getting it three days before they started shooting and got oh. and got the software installed and literally got it ready to go hours before they had to start shooting. And that's only because shooting got delayed by five days. So the company didn't would not have made their first that. deadline for the camera. I don't know what you do on a set when you don't have a camera. Like if you have all the people there and you have to take advantage of something, like I guess you just start painting stuff and like getting you props. You really ready. Like, work on those lights. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, <laughs> do you check your blocking several times. Yeah, you go go over your lines again. And yeah, just to finish on the camera and shooting conversation, I know, you know, I noticed the scenes where they did put the camera on a dolly or on a tripod or on whatever, and it was still, and you're watching it panning from right to left, and you see movement of rebels where like they come in from the top right of the screen, and then Shay is sitting oh, there. Some of those shots were bonkers gorgeous oh yeah like oh yeah you have the landscape the color saturation and the people are moving not the camera and i'm like oh my god i just want to like lick it off my fingers it's so tasty that's one of the things that makes it so frustrating is that you know this crew is competent the director the cinematographer like you see the product of when everything is done right how good this film looks And then you see these ridiculous shaky camp pieces where it just like makes zero sense why they made that choice. Welcome to Soderbergh. Okay. In any Soderbergh film, you're going to get shaky cam Dutch angles. I don't know why. Yes. Oh, I noticed the Dutch angles. But like Malik does a lot of Dutch angles. Mm. But Soderbergh, Soderbergh makes them shake. Mm. Malik was the first director Mm -hmm. for this. I know. And actually, he, this is... Oh, no. Here we go. I texted you guys before we started this, and I was like, oh, I found out why part two sucks. Yes. And it's because Terrence Malick fucking wrote the script. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you son of a bitch, you dirty dicked me again. Why are you doing this to me? Oh, my God. Because it actually, like, it honestly, like, I think it's better than a Terrence Malick movie. But you can definitely see his fucking grubby little fingerprints all over that bastard. It is very slow moving. So I think that's a good transition point. (laughs) I'm saying that's a good transition point into part two. Yeah, it is. The last thing I want to say about part one is with all the like small logistics they show you at some of it's in part two, some of it's part one. Why the fuck do we never see a gigantic crate of cigars being shown being lugged around all over cuba because these motherfuckers are smoking cigars i wanted to smoke a cigar while i watched this movie so bad where are all these cigars coming from like i know the pipe tobacco i know that we're in cuba but jesus like you would have been hauling these fucking things around you just pick the cigars right off the tree yeah (laughs) you're in fucking cuba You just throw them in a basket. Cigar season. Yeah. So Paul, he he did his masters in in London and England and the UK do not have 
the restrictions that we do with Cuba. So he has actually smoked Cuban cigars. Nice. And he does not like cigars. He does, he does not smoke cigarettes or anything like that. And even he was like, they're pretty fucking amazing. Because yeah. I was like, why are they all smoking all the time? I have had one Cuban cigar in my life, and it was gloriously illegal. I've, I've had a few here and there, and if you gave me a Dominican cigar and a Cuban cigar side by side, I doubt that I'd be able to tell the difference. Yeah, Dominicans are about the best that you can get as far as like comparable to a Cuban because they're right around the same region, have very similar kind of like soil and climate and air temperature. Yeah, so uh, the very last thing I wanted to throw in that I forgot to mention, so the whole ending of part one with the car, not only is that ostensibly a true story but that was a story that came from a book that benicio del toro found in cuba when he was visiting at an old bookstore because there's tons of books that were published only in cuba and never made it anywhere else and he pulled that story directly from that book so the ending or at least the scene is arguably uh benicio del toro's merit because he found that and it wasn't really available anywhere else i fucking love that ending i thought that ending was great it yeah. was it was fun, like it was kind of funny, but also like shows him being like kind of like it's it's a good character note. It just it was fun. It emphasizes him being an idealist to the max. Right. And I appreciated that. So part two is where this whole thing really fell off the rails for me. Part one, I was like, okay, this is interesting. It's slow moving, but there's a lot of depth here. There's obviously a lot of thought and purpose behind the film. And then part two starts. And it shows you a map for at least two minutes of South America and tells you where the countries are. I was like, I didn't need need this. And then every fucking scene after that is far too long. It does not give you any information. I was so dissatisfied with part two in a way that I am not usually that aggressively upset about a movie. (laughs) But in this one, I was like angry by the end of it. I was like, fuck you, Soderbergh, for making me watch this. (laughs) I was not happy because it's just, it's frustratingly tedious films drive me crazy. Let me just quote from the little, the can like newsletter or whatever that is the main thing that maybe they publish in the New York times. I'm not hundred percent sure, mm-hmm. but one of the quotes that the headline to this article about the film quote, one bona fide masterpiece and one outright atrocity. Which kind of sums oh. things up. But like I said, that's the great thing when I do uh, more current films is because I can find 15 or 20 reviews as opposed to something like the Battle of Algiers where I found all of all of three yeah, more challenging <laughs> contemporary reviews. But in with this one, I, I am not kidding in that there were people who thought part two was by far and away the best part of the film and people who felt the opposite. I would read a review and then I'd read the next one and literally the things that the, f- the one I'd read before were critiquing and saying this is the worst part of this movie. The next review is like, this is amazing wow. and I love it and it's so perfect. And I was just like, what? Like, Roger Ebert, second part, his favorite. Really? Thought it was amazing. Yes. That's crazy. It was so bizarre. And I, I've read lots 
lots of reviews. And I have rarely seen something that's so polarizing. It's not necessarily like they go to one pole or the other. (laughs) I wouldn't call it polarizing. It was more like all over the map. It's like big Indians versus little Indians where like some you're either a part one or a part two or there was some of that, but it was really about how everybody had a different interpretation of what Soderbergh was trying to say, of what Del Toro's performance was trying to say, of what this film was trying to say about Che in general. Like there was just such a huge variety of perspectives on this. And that's why I said in my breakdown that the film, the second part especially, feels so goddamn vague mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think is purposeful. Right. It also feels very purposeful. Yeah, I think there there are a lot of victims here. The vagueness, even the portrayal. Katie's eyes. <laughs> Katie's eyes were a victim. Right. Yeah, they were. But what I mean is there are a lot of unintended consequences of the circumstances here and not necessarily what Soderbergh was going for from the beginning, I think. Especially when you consider yeah. that part two was filmed before part one. So Del Toro's performance, I think, was strengthened by the time he got to shooting part one. I think he probably embodied the character better, understood him better. It was more layered and more rich and deeper. And I mean, I get that films do this all the time. You shoot scenes out of order. Like, you know, when a film is shot in chronological order, it's usually so rare that it's like known by everyone that this film was shot in order because it's so strange to do that. Yeah, nobody does that because it's not a good it's not a good thing to do production wise. Like, it doesn't make sense. Well, it's not practical, right? Exactly. Right. You like you're going to Mexico for this week. You're gonna have to shoot every single jungle scene from both or from whatever when you're in Mexico for a week and you've spent all the money to be there. Like obviously, when you think about logistics, that makes sense. But I think in this case, part of the unintended consequence uh, or the victim of this process was the fact that they filmed part two first. Uh, again, I understand the reasons why they did it, but I think that was part of the issue. Part one does feel more balanced, more polished. You know, the performance, just everything about it seems better. And I think that just might be the fact that the crew was more cohesive by that point. Uh, Liam, what'd you think of part two? So I, I also do think that a lot of that has to do with the script. Mm -hmm. It was the initial script was written by Terrence Malick. It was going Mm -hmm. to be directed by Terrence Malick. He initially conceived of just making a movie about the failed Bolivian rebellion. Mm -hmm. And I think that might also have something to do with why they went with part two first, maybe not, but that seemed to be like what the original concept was, was Che in Bolivia. That was the original concept. That was the, there, there's a book, I believe it's called Gorilla. That is about Che's experience in Bolivia. And that is the thing that Benicio del Toro and another person optioned to make a movie about. So that Mm. was the starting point of the film. So that might be why they also started with that as along with the ease of like taking Benicio del Toro from emaciated to more hale and, you know, healthy during this glorious Mexico City days. So this is this is a, a weird, weird one for me because I didn't enjoy part two. No one does. Ebert did. <laughs> I, ah, damn it. That's true. But I loved that I didn't enjoy it. 
Why? But, you know, you said earlier, Katie, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. but I think there was a note of derision in your voice when you said that this was very much wanting to be an art film. I think it is an art film. It is. It definitely wants that. And I, and yeah, you, you, you laid a, you drizzled a little extra sauce on that. No, there is no point. Not for, <laughs> not for art films, for this no, film. For this yes. movie being yes. an art film. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So I would agree that this is an art film. I don't view that as a, as a knock against this film. Or I don't think that this was wanting to be something that it didn't end up being. And the reason for that is even the stuff, Dan, that you didn't like in the end of part one, I really liked that. I liked how much time we spent watching them try to break through walls. Hmm. And I like how much I didn't enjoy part two because the rebellion didn't have the same focus as the rebellion in Cuba. It it was frustrating. It was exhausting. It was meandering and boring and a lot of other things. And I, I feel like that the things that I was feeling while watching it and not liking it were the point. Like it was, it was trying to put me into that mindset. Agreed. And I can't say that it was bad because it worked. And it did the thing, but I didn't like it. It wasn't an enjoyable experience to me. I think part one is more enjoyable from a a traditional cinema storytelling standpoint. Whereas part two is, is about an event that was a failure in every way that the prior event was a success. Yeah. This is definitely meant to be, and I agree fully. This is definitely meant to be a opposite reflection, and it's meant to show you the ways that Jay failed in his assumptions and actions and decisions throughout the entire film. And it's just like he can't pull his people together the same way. Like people are just fucking leaving and always like, hey, when can I go home? And it's just like, what is going on, guys? Are we in this or not? Yeah, no, I'm in it. But like. Are we going to have this wrapped up by January? Because I'd really like to be home by January. <laughs> so here's where I'm going to get semi-political on this. Because I feel like you have to if we're going to talk about it. Because Soderbergh definitely does in this in, the, in part two. In a way that he doesn't necessarily in part one. Does anybody want Che there? Was my question while watching this. Because so many of the people who we see him interact with are kind of like, what are you doing here, guy? And Fidel Castro is is a political figure, and therefore he is both good and bad, depending on your perspective of what he did. But the idea that there wasn't at least some sort of nation building going on with this effort seems a bit too much for me. And I think there is kind of a complete disregard of that. And if it's not Castro's nation building, it's certainly this idea of building a community of communist countries, which I have mixed feelings on regardless, Uh, not good or bad necessarily. But this is the film where they dive into the fact that the U.S. has a significant 
role to play in South America when it comes to things like the Bolivian conflict between Che and the government. And they certainly contributed to the fact that Che was not able to succeed, whereas he was in Cuba because America didn't necessarily have the hold they did in Bolivia. So I think that's also part of why it failed for me, because it felt like it was kind of side eyeing that without engaging in it in either a positive or negative way. And I feel like with this kind of film, you should make a stand but how you feel about that, because Jay certainly would have. Oh, I think it definitely was like, I don't think it was necessarily side-eyeing it. I think it was addressing it the way that like, but from that Soderbergh, like 10 feet away, Mm -hmm. just showing you the stuff. But a lot of the reviews I read explicitly stated that it didn't feel that it was making a positive or negative comment on the American involvement in this. Oh, I thought all the Americans were shitty. I was like, how can you not see that this is bad? I I thought it was decidedly not in favor of the American control of South America. I would agree. It never like has a, cartoony like donald rumsfeld character come out and be like we're gonna take (laughs) it like like weird grinning skull man i think it's a relatively fair presentation of what was going on in bolivia those were just kind of the facts i think that if the film is trying to make a statement about the america the u.s involvement in bolivia being negative it did not go far enough because there were enough people who had no fucking clue that that's what the film was trying to say that it loses that message. And that same photo teacher, the art teacher that I had, he said, if you are trying to make a point, you go for it. Do not be vague. Do not ride the edge. If you're going to make a picture blurry, you make it really fucking blurry. So everybody knows you did this on purpose and you're not just an incompetent boob. So, (laughs) and I think that's kind of where this one falls into is that it is, it's kind of trying to walk a line and by doing so it kind of betrays itself. I don't really think that it was trying to, I don't know. I disagree. I don't think it was trying to walk the line. I think to put it charitably, the U S government had its thumb on the scale, something fierce. Oh, absolutely. And that was one of the big contributing factors to the revolution, not being successful in this case. And I think if you are in favor of Che succeeding in that revolution and living at the end, then you view that as a bad thing. If you don't necessarily, then you might not see the point of that inclusion, but it happened and he showed it. To go back for a second on Liam's point, I'm not going to give the filmmaker credit for things that happened as an unintended consequence of things. So while I can appreciate that the boredom and the length of shots made Liam feel the way some of the rebels may have felt in part two, like I get what he's saying. At the same time, I still think some much tighter editing and wrapping that story up into a part of like into the third act of a single film, you could have more competently pulled that off 
without dragging the audience through an extra hour and a half of just like hanging out at camp and like showing how <laughs> frustrated everyone is that, you know, they capture these soldiers and none of them want to join their movement. And they're just like, Oh no, like, you know, like that's a good scene, but I'm saying that there's just too much dead time there. Going back to Bill's research for a second, a fundamental difference between Cuba and Bolivia stemmed from their distinct colonial histories. Cuba was a Spanish colony that overwhelmingly relied on African slave labor. Slavery ended in the 1860s, and Cuban society evolved to be overwhelmingly white, black, and mixed race, with some very small numbers of Chinese immigrants and other groups. There was little to no indigenous presence in Cuba in the 1950s, because all the indigenous people in Cuba had already been killed by that point. This means that the Cuban revolutionaries would have encountered no linguistic barriers between themselves and the peasants of rural Cuba. In Bolivia, on the other hand, African slavery was a relatively unimportant feature of the colonial period. Instead, Bolivia's large indigenous population was exploited by the colonial upper classes in a sort of feudalistic fashion. Very stark linguistic and cultural divides between the urban elites and the rural indigenous majority persisted in Bolivia into the 1960s. Guevara and his guerrillas were not operating among a population they could communicate with easily in many instances. There was a military regime that controlled Bolivia when Che came to the country, but, and it's a big but, circumstances on the ground in Bolivia actually did not fit Che's own model for revolution in various ways. For one thing, Bolivia had a pretty robust recent tradition of electoral democracy, and rural Bolivians had actually seen their political and economic rights increasing lately, and also their access to land. So it didn't really make sense for the guerrillas to make agrarian reform the centerpiece of their program as they had in Cuba, because agrarian reform had been successfully carried out already, I think in the 1950s. Also, most of Bolivia's indigenous population lived in the high elevation region of the country where there was little cover for guerrilla operations. The tropical forests in the east offered plenty of cover for the guerrillas, but there weren't very many people there to work with. So you couldn't really carry out the program of simultaneous revolution and social services reform in cover that Che calls for in his book. So the circumstances were vastly different in Bolivia. That's just, that's a list of many of the reasons why things didn't work out. And so even Bill references this, and some people have said, you know, the first one is shot more traditionally with wider angles, but a little bit more use of dollies and tripods and more steady camera shots, even though, again, I would argue there's still too much shaky cam, even in part one. The second one, and Liam should chime in whether he agrees or not, the second one, a lot of it is shot a lot more like a horror film, meaning that it focuses a lot more on Shay's asthma, the lack of food, how uncomfortable they were, how isolated they felt, how much disagreement there was within the troops because they were continuing to be unsuccessful. Like they just weren't getting any wins. And by the time the CIA started to come through with the Rangers, this new force of Bolivian military that they had trained, the Green Berets had trained them specifically to hunt down and kill Guevara and his guerrillas. They were in a pretty desperate place. And again, I do think the film does a good job of showing you that and making you feel sort of this vice grip that was tightening down on Che and the gorillas. I just don't think it needed to do it for that long. But what do you think about the sort of horror film aspect and the difference in the shooting in terms of close-ups and all that, Liam and, and Katie, of course? So I didn't watch this and necessarily think horror film. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't either, but I just felt it was worth mentioning. But no, yeah, it's a, it's a, an interesting take. And I'm trying to think if there are any Fright Pub movies that I would equate this to that I've seen so far. And maybe Leprechaun 3. We haven't gotten to Leprechaun 3 yet because we only do those on St. Patrick's Day. Um, right. so, we'll look forward to that next year. We're like the we're like the holiday in of, of <laughs> horror film podcasts. So this would remind me, I think, of maybe a little bit of Hour of the Wolf or something where like the passage of time feels really oppressive potentially repulsion which we just watched not too long ago Mm. where it's like very atmospheric and psychological in its horror style but it's it, it never really dives into the fear aspect so you get a lot of anxiety and you get a lot of foreboding and you get a lot of that slow march of time and just an outlook that keeps getting bleaker and bleaker, but it never really gets into the psychology of like, you never really see Che succumbing to fear. You never really see Che feel things about anything. (laughs) Well, you could see him not breathing. He gets upset sometimes. Yeah. 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 And we get to see him having asthma attacks. I mean, I, I don't know the, maybe he was a, a dude with a very stoic exterior under under all that hair <laughs> and the beard you know i i actually rocked a very che look for a very long time you shaved the top of your head and dyed the sides white yes i did that <laughs> i did that i gave myself the cul-de-sac sorry i had to because we didn't actually talk about the disguise yet <laughs> oh the disguise was so confusing to me at first so but it must have it, worked i think it's accurate and that they yeah. call him Ramon, Ramon out of nowhere. I was like, who the fuck is Ramon? Well, they called him Ramon for a while. And then they were like, we need to change your name. Yep. And then I think they started calling Fernando. him Fernando. And I was Fernando. like, holy shit. I know a lot of people are going to miss that. That was one thing that I think is really neat about this one versus not like versus the first one, but like because of the first one is when he comes to Bolivia and everybody's like, hey, you know who that fucking guy is? Right. You just shook Che's hand. And he's like, oh, fuck. Can I go shake it again? Like <laughs> yes. that was just that was like, a nice line. just his his legend preceding him a little bit was like done in a in a subtle but not like not obvious way. Like I don't know. It was it was I thought that was nicely balanced. Uh and a nice kind of little bit of momentum from the first movie that then quickly dies in the swamp of sorrow like Artax. Oh god, yeah. I feel that horror movie idea but it's like the most boring horror movie ever. Right. And this film telegraphs, the second part telegraphs from the beginning that everything is going to fail. And it just really ramps that up as every scene happens. And at a certain point, it becomes tedious that, you know, they're telegraphing these that this group is not going to succeed by showing us all of these scenes of like the villagers talking to the 
the Bolivian military and giving in the the villagers hiding the Bolivian military in order to catch Che and his his compatriots. And there's just so much of that. And like Che's worsening asthma attacks. And it's just at a certain point, it becomes this long dreaded march to death. <laughs> About 45 minutes in, I was like, oh, this is just going to be him dying over the next hour and a half. Great. Just like Passion of the Christ. I haven't seen Passion of the Christ and I won't watch it because I grew up watching horrible Christian movies. You should. It's hilarious. I don't need to see another one. I've seen so many movies where Jesus gets executed. I don't need to see it again. We reviewed that as a horror film. It is a horror film. Yeah, I feel like this is as it gets closer and closer to the end, which I thought the ending scene is pretty good. Like the final scene of Che's death and how he handles that. It is very interesting because of how it uh, portrays him as still being able to move hearts and minds, as the American saying is. You know, he's still able to inspire people, even though that person knows that he he he's going to be executed in the next 20 minutes. I did just want to point out that there was kind of a, a similar connection that I drew to Wind That Shakes the Barley. When you have uh, the the wee redhead whose dad was from Donegal who like yes. lets them out of prison. Yeah. And how that could have been a, an instance like that where he's yeah, like, hey, I would, you, that. would you mind, would you mind untying me? And he just like is standing there looking at him and he just like turns around and like runs out and yep. he's like, what's wrong? Che asked me to untie him. Can can you go in? I, I can't be with him right now. Because <laughs> if I go back in there, I'm totally fucking untying him. Yes, exactly. I thought that part was so cool. And now it's time for the breakdown. The point in our show when we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Daniele, take us away. I hate, I hate my catchphrases too, Katie. I feel like I'm always bringing up the same things. I thought you were just going to say, I hate this movie. <laughs> oh, Come all I can on. Think is, did he say your name right? He did. Liam always okay. does a very good job of that. And Katie, your Ponte Corvo uh, pronunciations were spectacular as I'm editing oh, that episode. Just yes! so you know. I did it. Some people are going to be like, why is Katie trying so hard to be an Italian? But I appreciate the effort. So... I hate to always repeat myself, but I think this is a great example of the mixed bag I'm always talking about where I'm like, I absolutely could never tell someone these films are not worth watching or Soderbergh is full of shit and a terrible director. I absolutely would not say that. There's a lot of good here. And Jackie was the unfortunate victim due to timing of showing up to my house. And I was like, hey, guess what? The good news is we get to watch a movie. The bad news is it's Che part two and you haven't no, seen part one. No. And I even went back and had to show her a few of the UN scenes and a few of my favorite scenes from part one just to prove that I'm like, there's something here. And I definitely recommend you go back and watch part one. I'm not going to do that with you because once was enough. But. This is definitely <laughs> falls under the mixed bag thing for me. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll answer the questions in a second. But, you know, there was some great realism in a lot of the scenes. I think the action is shot really well. And it's sparse enough that this isn't an action movie or a traditional combat war film. So when it happens, it kind of hits harder when you're watching 
a villager's shack being bombed from an aircraft and they're like 10 yards away from it you're like oh holy shit they almost died or when someone is dying from a gunshot wound to the belly and you're getting that scene which yeah i mean you could consider a little bit tropey where sort of che the two doctors you know che looks at the other guy and the other guy kind of shakes his head he's like he's not gonna make it and then they look down at him and they're like hey the worst part is over and the guy kind of calms down and dies like i thought that scene was superbly well handled and it really didn't shy away from the gore of what it's like to die isolated and dirty and stinky in some shitty ass jungle trying to do something that's mostly built on idealism and not anything else that's practical like i I really got that feeling so a lot of the realism i really loved i do love that while i would have edited this differently the stuff they show you is factual they didn't make up anything for the sake of the story and i do appreciate that commitment to realism and and to the real history this was also slated to be in English at the beginning of the production. And I think changing it to Spanish caused a whole slew of problems. The funding had to be different. That's part of why a lot of this was filmed in Spain for the Bolivia scenes, because they had support from Spanish production companies because of the Spanish release. But I am absolutely so glad that they filmed this in Spanish. As much as it can get frustrating to read subtitles for four and a half hours and we've been doing it a lot lately plus i watched the motorcycle diaries so i was like a six hours into subtitles i also understand a lot of spanish so maybe it's a little easier for me it's because it's pepsi to italians coca-cola exactly and and i appreciate that sometimes che's diary monologues are in english because i'm like yeah that doesn't have to be in spanish that's fine obviously his diaries have been translated into many languages including english but on the bad side like the sh- the choice of when they chose to have a not a steady cam but you know to plant the camera versus doing the shaky cam shots like they show both examples of it making sense and not making sense and i just don't understand a lot of those choices the two film structure felt forced i really think having had more time and not being on a like barely over two month shooting schedule for both films put together had they had more time to do proper editing like there's a lot of good here it just needs to be cut down to three hours and needs to be shown in a different way and again i would do some montages if dan's making this better i would do a few montages (laughs) of what we talked about earlier and there are a few additional things that i would shoot and remove a lot of other fat Again, I, I really don't think this film is too long. There's just too much fat. Like you could cut a lot of useless stuff out of it and make it a tighter, more concise thing. There are a few quotes that I ran into doing the research for this. One was, and I and I didn't write down who it was from because it was like a third-hand story. But in terms of you guys were talking about, and often Che is referred to as like a cold portrayal in this film. And I think everyone that did the research did the interviews, especially Del Toro, who, again, very much deserved the awards for his portrayal of Che. His physical appearance is incredible. I mean, their facial hair grows in in like the same way. It's insane. Like he looks so much like him. And I think he really I don't think he's a method actor, but I think he really did embody the character in an exceptional way. And one of the quotes that has been said about Guevara is you had to love him for free. Meaning he inspired a lot of affection and a lot of idealism, but he was a pretty cold, idealistic person that didn't waste a lot of time with niceties and was like, 
what we see as a flaw in the film in terms of self-importance, I think the importance that Guevara gave to armed revolution and sort of freeing poor people from their plight was a very real thing. Again, regardless of how you feel about communist regimes later and what the Castro regime turned into, I think there's a lot to admire in Che Guevara's approach to things. Another thing that I absolutely did not understand is I can't believe how they ruined the ending of this film. And that is because it's rare that you find someone that has such laconic quotes in the real history. And I just can't understand why you would go and change his last words, which are one of my favorite. So if you go look up a list of like the best, the best 10 things ever said before someone was killed, like the best last words, Che Guevara's last words almost always make that list. And according to his biographer, according to people who were there, what they show happened in reality. So the Green Beret, you know, former Cuban exile, et cetera, had a relationship with him and they talked. The prison guard had a relationship with him and they talked and they cut that down. It's very reduced compared to how long he was there and what conversations took place. But when finally the soldier came in who volunteered to execute him, Che looked at him and said, I know you have come to kill me. Shoot, coward. You're only going to kill a man. And I fucking love that quote because I think it serves double duty there. It One could be taken at face value, meaning he's trying to be tough and say, I've killed men before. It's not a big deal. Just shoot me. All you're going to do is kill a man. Of course, the higher level and what I think the philosophical significance of that quote is, you can kill me but you're not going to kill my ideals and my spirit and my inspiration and my ideals will live on well after I'm dead. I mean, it's such a, such a laconic, such a Spartan quote. And the fact that Soderbergh decided to take that out, make him just say, I think he just said, shoot me or shoot or something. And then they do this POV shot of the camera taking the bullets and then falling down and then kind of fading out which looks like a cutscene from a Call of Duty video game when you're playing a video game and you're killed as like a first-person shooter. I could not believe that he made that choice. And I'm sorry. You're not wrong. I don't mean to be arrogant because I'm not a director. And again, I respect Soderbergh. I like his ideals. But you shoot that scene where you actually have him say what Che said in real life, according to witnesses, and just show his face and show that he faced death when he knew it was imminent and was brave about it. I think that's such a better ending and does so much more justice to how the man actually died. So I think the goal here was to show the facts and let you understand a bit of history and what Che was involved in, what he did and a little bit of sort of how the Cuban revolution was successful while the attempt at Bolivian revolution was not, even though, like we said, there's a lot of exposition that's missed and a lot of explanation that's missed. And I think these films, which again, I, for me as a overall experience, I would add the motorcycle diaries to this. If you want to understand who Che was as a person, these films do a lot to round off your experience as someone who's trying to read books and learn about this history. I think they're a great tool in helping you feel a little bit of it and understand a little bit of it. Standalone as a film, it's not that enjoyable of a film. But again, there's a lot of good there. And if you're interested in the story, 
at all or about Che and the Cuban Revolution, I think it's they're well worth watching, even though someone in the future might do a better job of it. So was it on target? Taking the two acts out of six that I liked and uh, reducing that down to one third, I think it's one third on target. Did I like it? I'd kind of say the same thing. I liked a third of this, but I would re-edit it and reshoot some of it. And I think that it has a lot of potential to be much better. So I went through a whole roller coaster through the four or five days that I was watching these and doing the, <laughs> you know, researching the history where I was like, fucking Liam, I don't know why he made us watch this. This is bullshit. And by the time I got to the end of it and watched the making of it, I was like, this is a great example of again art versus real life and how you can make things successful or not in cinema and i'll end my point in a huxley quote that jackie sent to me which i thought was really great where she's trying to explain the link between or sorry where huxley is trying to explain the link between science and literature and he basically said if experience is subjective what is the best way to communicate that subjectivity? Science and objectivity isn't really the answer. That's what art is for. If you're trying to take Che's diaries and show a subjective experience as a form of art, that is a really noble goal, and I appreciate what he was trying to do. I understand why it's on Criterion. I think this is a worthy piece of cinema history. 100% successful it is not. But I'm really glad that it is now a part of our Danger Close project because it really deserves to be. So thank you, Liam, for picking this one. And also, I kind of hate you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, what's your breakdown? So I got to say, and, and we will give Katie her, her last word on this one. I'm not going to be nice. I know. I don't need you to be nice. I need you to be the other thing. Be be mean. Be mean. One of the reasons why I, I added this one is that I've seen this before, and I swear to God, I don't know what to do with it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I really just needed us all to come together and talk it out. And I think we've done that, which is good. I felt the same after watching this, honestly. I needed to talk about it. Yeah, it's like you watch this and you're just kind of like, well... I can't just deal with this myself. This is the perfect film studies movie. Right, exactly. And I think that in relation to a lot of the other movies that we've done on revolutions and rebellions, I think this is a good conversation piece. We've talked some about how, you know, there are some comparisons to be made to Wind That Shakes the Barley. Another one that I think is interesting is that I think this succeeds where I had some issues with Battle of Algiers, where it didn't really tell you much about, you know, what the, what the cause of the revolution was. This, much like Wind That Shakes the Barley, drops you in fairly into the thick of things, but does a good job of sort of catching you up along the way, mostly with a lot of the political conversations that are happening separate from the action. I think that's, much, much stronger in part one when it's laying that groundwork of like what Che's ideas and what he's trying to accomplish, what those are. No, Morty. Don't start. Yeah, don't start, Morty. You can handle it. And 
in comparison to Battle of Algiers, where realism was the intent and I hated it, this one felt much more realistic to me for all of its artifice. Now, I think Soderbergh fucks up a couple of things, one of which is, Dan, I 100% agree with you on the last his last words and the way his death is handled. I don't know the reason for it. I don't like it. And if there were one thing I were going to change about this entire movie, it would be that. And again, when you get into the shots in at the UN being in that grainy newsreel footage that kind of undercuts and flies in the face of the realism that you're trying to capture with the rest of the film. So I didn't love that style, but that's also kind of what you get with Soderbergh. Like he's a little stylistically all over the place. And Katie, I know you said that he's a very one for you, one for me director. Mm -hmm. He's like, meh, two for me. And then the rest for, I don't know who the, like, I don't know who the fuck likes his movies. (laughs) Magic Mike is amazing. Magic Mike sucks. Contagion is a great film. Haven't seen Contagion. I fucking hate the Oceans movies. Oh, Marty. Didn't really much care for traffic, honestly. I love Behind the Candelabra, actually. Oh, he did that. I watched that one and I was not, I, I didn't love it. Yeah, actually, I, I can't say I loved it. I liked it. The only the only movie of his that I will like fucking go to the mattresses for is Out of Sight. Out of Sight is a goddamn masterpiece. And it also has Jennifer Lopez, which is weird that it's as good as it's as good as as it is with Jennifer Lopez in it. Mm-mm, don't be dissing my J-Lo. <laughs> did you not see Hustlers? I did not see Hustlers. Then you do not understand the J-Lo, is all, is all I'm saying here. <laughs> I'm just saying she has no business being as good in that movie as she is. See Hustlers, you'll feel differently. But yeah, Out of Sight is amazing. Love that movie. It's spectacular. This, I can't say I love this. Oh, good. Thank God. I think it's objective was to make a film that was based on these two different writings from the same person about two different conflicts they were involved in that both had wildly different outcomes and to compare and contrast them like you would in a school English paper and to just tell that story. Is it meant to be slightly aggrandizing to Che? I don't think it's afraid of being that. I don't think it <laughs> intended to go out there and be like, let's let's make Che porn. But I also don't think that they were worried about coming across as pro-Che in this movie. Obviously, Benicio Del Toro found a, maybe not a kindred spirit, but like somebody who he admired and could grab onto. I think it's insane, honestly, that this movie was directed and written by like a bunch of white dudes. That's a difference between 2008 and 2021. This would be like a, uh, in film or, uh, 
mm-hmm. Poirot film if it were made today. Poirot would have done such a better job. So would have Inuritu. Or, or Del Toro. Either one of them. Well, there's no monsters in it, so Del Toro's not going to be <laughs> interested. And that's too many Del Toros. Too many Del Toros in one movie. You cannot do it. Those are both better directors than Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> that's true. They're, they're just flat out unequivocally better directors. And that's not Soderbergh's fault that he kind of sucks at his job. But I think this movie was fairly on target. If the objective of the movie was to get everybody with a Che poster in their dorm room to take the Che poster down from their dorm room, I don't think it did that. But I also don't think that was the objective either. I don't know if it was necessarily concerned with getting new Che posters up, but I think it just wanted to give maybe like a more realistic picture to the people that already had the Che posters. Just round out that like abstract graphic that's on the t-shirts. Maybe like make that more of a concrete, clear picture of a person. So yeah, I think it was largely on target. And as far as did I like it, I did. I didn't always enjoy it, but I liked it. And as much as this movie has a ton of problems, it's sort of just sprinkled throughout without having a different script, without going back and making it with a different director. I don't see any way of fixing them. So I know, Dan, you thought that it was mostly a problem of editing. 100%. I kind of disagree because there's nothing in this that I could think of that would that I would cut out necessarily or change like this or that or the other thing that wouldn't sort of lessen my experience of watching it. The way this movie makes me feel while I watch it is why I would watch this movie. I mean, I could do the fan edit and just come over to your house and like hit you in the back of the legs with like a mallet while you're watching it. And I could give you the same experience in a, in a reduced version. (laughs) Well, that means your ass has to come to Pittsburgh. So challenge accepted motherfucker. Katie floor is yours. So what was the objective of this film? I, I kind of agree with both Liam and Dan about this. I think the objective is that Benicio del Toro and eventually Soderbergh wanted to tell a story about Che Guevara. They did that. But I think in my mind watching this and wondering constantly, why the fuck did they make this movie like this? I think it's more that there is a certain, there is an effort to make this a quote-unquote non-political film because they don't really get into Che's communist politics. They don't get into his his beliefs beyond he wants to uplift, you know, the peasants. They 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 don't get into the nitty gritty of what would make his politics and his ideals unpalatable to general audiences. Because honestly, communist and collectivist ideals of which he was a big fan are not going to be popular with general audiences. So I think in that aspect, they succeeded. They made a film that makes Che seem a fairly neutral character in some ways. And I think that's bad. That is bad. (laughs) 
if you are going to make a, f- a movie about a politically active, you know, guerrilla fighter, you should be talking about his specific politics, about why he's doing what he's doing beyond freeing the peasants, which is really all we get. And we see a lot of, and I'm, I'm just going to be mean here, folks, and maybe a bit biased, but we see a lot of fucking hero worship. This film comes real close to just saying that Che is a saint and we should all think he's amazing. And it becomes tiresome so quickly because I, I think his biggest flaw is he has asthma. Oh, no. How dare he have, you know, a medical condition? We don't we don't really see Che doing anything particularly awful. His bad actions are justified by the plot. The fact that he has a, two wives, multiple children. Why did he abandon them? Why aren't they in the movie? Why doesn't he care or talk about them? Not explored. Not explored. But they are certainly used for sympathy fodder in the beginning of the second film. It takes no pains to explain what the fuck is going on. Why Che did that. What the reasoning behind uh, his political movements from Cuba to the Congo to Bolivia are it really just tries to skate by on this thin veneer of Che Guevara is a very misunderstood man who had deep, good political goals, and we should all appreciate him. Which I don't know if that's wrong, honestly, because I don't know enough about Che to say that. But I know that this movie didn't convince me of that. It made Che out to be, as we said, very cold, very distant, and very martyr-esque. And as someone who spent far too much time in the church when she was young, that is not my thing. And anytime I am told to have some kind of like blind appreciation for someone because of their ideals, I am always going to look askance at it. And I think that Soderbergh and Del Toro kind of got carried away with the belief that that Che Guevara was more than just a person. He was just a human with regular faults. And as I have talked about in previous films, I despise films where it is all about valorizing people without recognizing their humanity. In particular, we were soldiers. Because I think it does a sincere and huge disservice to those people. Because to me, after watching this, like, Che's not a person. He's like St. Francis of Assisi. You know, he, he, he's a mythical creature like a unicorn. Not, you know, a regular guy who maybe wasn't good all of the time. and Maybe wasn't fully true to his ideals all of the time. And had to make sacrifices. I think here's the weird thing. I think it's on target for what the filmmakers intended. It definitely hits the point of that idealized version of Che and pushes its audience to think about why someone would do this and what was the reasoning behind him taking these huge steps of going from Mexico City to Cuba, then going to Bolivia. And I think if you want to actually know what happened in the movie, you have to do research Beyond that, because the movie does not tell you what the hell is going on other than man walking through jungle with other men. Like, there's so little background and story for something that's 
not that well known, to me, it just fails on all of those levels because there's no chance for me to really connect with any of these people. So weirdly enough, yeah, it's on target. Did I like it? Well, fuck no. I hated it. I hated it so goddamn much. The second one, the second one, the first one I think is a decent film that achieves a little closer to what it's going for. But the second one is so boring and so up its own ass. I can't even with that. And again, I love art films. I love films that push boundaries and try to go somewhere else. But for this, it's a devotion to making its main character a hero at the cost of reality and truth. When, to me at least, the Che that they're portraying, I would at least think that that's a man who wants to be known for who he really is, not for this idealized version of him. And so it just feels like a disservice all the way around. So I... Yeah, I really hated the second one. I was essentially screaming at my TV from 30 seconds in of like, why the fuck is this taking so long? And I wish I'd liked it. I I really wish I had because I want to like movies that I watch because otherwise it's torturous to watch them. But this one just feels so misguided and so unaware that I can't do anything but think that it's trash. So... There's my shitting on something, which is nowhere near where Liam would have gone. I admit. <laughs> it was good. It was good. I'm still a newbie at this whole talking trash about films thing. Not really. I was just saying that for Liam's benefit. But <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> oh, I know you are. You're doing so good. I'm so proud. <laughs> so, Dan, what are we going to do next? Hopefully it's something that will cause as good a discussion as Jay. I definitely think everyone is going to agree, certainly among us three, that we are going to do a better film or at least a more critically acclaimed film. So we are doing our first David Lean film next from 1965, Dr. Zhivago, which takes place during World War One and the October Revolution. So, of course, if you're not familiar with David Lean, the few maybe people who haven't who are just getting into cinema Lawrence of Arabia is probably his most famous works. A Passage to India I haven't seen. The Bridge on the River Kwai, which we will definitely cover. Because it's really just the four, right? Those are the famous ones. The Bridge, Passage to India, Lawrence of Arabia, and Dr. Zhivago. I think like so, David yeah. Lean may, may have done other stuff, but those are the He did do ones. other stuff, but like those are the yeah. big ones that people think when they think of David Lean movies. David Lean is amazing. And we quoted his widow here, disparaging Steven Spielberg. Go back to our... Go back to our Empire of the Sun episode if you want to hear that. But we haven't actually covered David Lean yet, so I'm really excited to do that. If you disagree with our take on Che and want to talk about it more, which there's certainly room for discussion, you can join our discussion group on Facebook under Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group. And if you want to hear us talk about The Terminator and Wes Anderson films and Independence Day and other random war-related adjacent things, you can check out our Patreon for only four bucks a month. That's at dangerclosepod.com forward slash support. Thanks for listening. I know I always say that I'm excited for the next one, but I really am. I really love this project <laughs> as I know Katie and Liam do. And I'm always surprised by the types of conversations that come out of these films, whether we like them or hate them. I feel like I'm always learning something new about cinema and about history. And I really love that process. And 
I love our community and how involved you guys are in the group. Look out for our next audience poll, and we'll see you guys soon. Thank you. Bye. Orillitas del canal Cuando llega la mañana Sale cantando la noche Desde lo de Valderrama Sale cantando la noche Desde lo de Valderrama Okay, Liam, do your Hamilton correction. Okay, so... You, have you can call minutes. this our, our like, uh, intermittent after-action report, I guess, because we, obviously we only do it every so often. After-action report? I misspoke on the Hamilton episode where we were discussing George Washington and his previous failure early in his career around Fort Necessity, and... This was pointed out to me the other night by one of my dear friends and avid listener to the show. Doesn't always watch the movies with us, but he listens to every single episode as soon as it drops. And he told me that he just started yelling at his radio <laughs> in the car while he was We're driving. On the radio? Was it yeah. Dave? No, it wasn't. It was my friend Brian, aka Booyah, who is oh, a okay who is a newly tenured PhD professor at Carnegie Mellon university. Oh my. And he is also just a big old Pittsburgh fanatic. And when I said that Fort necessity was near Latrobe, he was like, you fuck it's near Uniontown, not Latrobe. And so <laughs> there actually is a bit of a story as to why I made that mistake, but I will not bore you with the details. Uh, but yes, Fort Necessity is near Uniontown, whereas Latrobe is not near Uniontown. Suffice to say that, like, just from my personal experience, it is possible to get lost in Latrobe and suddenly find yourself in Uniontown, but they're <laughs> not next to each other. And I feel like everyone on the West Coast is just like, what are you what? correcting? It's all in Pennsylvania, right? Like, who gives a shit? Right? Well, it's not Latrobe. It's Uniontown. Okay. Good thank to know. Thank you for that, Liam. You're and welcome. Thank you, Morty, for not chewing on Katie's cords this episode. I mean, he did a little bit, but he A little away. bit. It's okay. I was talking. It wasn't important. He ran away.